Don't frighten us by telling us the facts, 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 the facts. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark in the great state of Delaware. I'm Bill Humphrey, and thanks for listening. The following episode was recorded on October 3rd, 2016, and produced by me at my studio in Newton, Massachusetts. This week, Rachel and Jonathan joined me to discuss universal public goods and down-ballot Democratic platforms in conservative states. All that is coming up right now on Arsenal for Democracy. Arsenal for Democracy is available for download on Wednesdays at arsenalfordemocracy.com and from iTunes. We air the show in Delaware on 91.3 FM and stream it from wvud.org on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Follow us on Twitter at AFD Radio or like us on Facebook. This is the Arsenal for Democracy. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. We're recording this on Monday, October 3rd. Joining me in studio is my friend Jonathan Cohn. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Bill. On the line from Idaho is Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yes, it was very nice to have your sister on last week. Um, So now we're rounding out our panel by having you on. Great. (laughs) So we're going to kind of have a little bit of a freewheeling discussion. We're still recapping some of the major themes that have emerged over the past year. I mean, we're not recapping every single news story that's happened. That would just be A, a fool's errand, and B, completely pointless, because this has been a really garbage year for any (laughs) substantive news and any policy discussion. But this is a show for millennials discussing politics and policy uh, from that sort of perspective and, and a sort of social democratic and pr- progressive bent. So we're going to continue to have that big picture discussion. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about, we t- we got into it a little bit last week, but not in as much detail about sort of emerging differences in perspectives on uh, the economy as a whole, and therefore the policy and politics surrounding uh, economic policy. We were talking a little bit about kind of the dichotomy within the millennial generation, and then the millennials versus everyone older in terms of perspectives on socialism and perspectives on Hillary Clinton and perspectives on Bernie Sanders. I wanted to talk a little bit more about that, because I thought that was one of the other sort of big, interesting emerging trends. And as somebody on Twitter said this past weekend, it's it's not not a surprise that younger people would be looking in a new direction economically, given the sort of decline in standard of living and income that, you know, versus the previous generations at this same age, mm-hmm. uh, especially the one immediately before us. So, uh, Jonathan, I know this is something that you and I have talked a lot about. This issue of sort of capitalism needs minor corrections versus we need substantially more public ownership. Um, And then also even further to the left, people who are 
taking a more openly socialist bent, which is saying not just public ownership of many things, but that we need to be abolishing notions of private property. And I know that you had pointed out that there were some emerging differences this year in the philosophy of uh, Elizabeth Warren versus Bernie Sanders. Previously, they had been kind of often associated together in terms of their policy framework, but that seemed to diverge a little bit. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, and before I get to that, I just want to one quick thing about talking about millennials and politics. Two things that I think shape what might be different about the millennial generation in politics is one, the lack of the Cold War as a framework at all. People who are in the millennial generation are too young and have ever really studied history of politics in a Cold War frame because they would have been they've been too young when the Soviet Union fell, fell or not yet born and combining that with the rapid technological advancement and forms of connectivity that have come over like over our kind of young years and I think those together with like a financial crisis hitting at a very prime age. It's kind of like a perfect storm in shaping people's political views. But yeah, go- going back to what Bill was saying a second ago, um, I had talked about s- this with somebody before in terms of the contrast. I guess it'd be within the Democratic Party, even though Bernie Sanders is still an independent in the Senate. But the contrast between, say, like a left liberal position and something that would be more of, let's say, like a, or a democratic socialist position or however one would so, so call it, in that someone like Elizabeth Warren, who's good on pretty uh, on most issues of domestic policy, I'll make it look the domestic foreign uh, distinction there, but her view when she approaches things is that capitalism as a system, for the most part, it works. It, it's something to be preserved, and what needs to be done is to kind of alleviate the flaws that come out of it. So any tips like the exter- the externalities that come out of capitalism, such as let's say in- environmental damage and pollution, that you need to find out ways to mitigate those. You need to set up the appropriate rules and frameworks to make sure that everybody is playing by the same rules. So it's something that sees the game inherent, in, let's say the game inherent in capitalism as a game worth playing, but just wants to make sure that there are a set of rules that everybody abides by when they're playing the game. So hence, there are kind of something like transparency or like words like consumer protection. Yeah, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was sort of her baby that she got yeah. started. Yeah. And so that kind of abides by that, that framework where it's we want to present the rules of the game so that people play the game fairly, but assumes that the game itself is something worth playing. And that's kind of, and you have, even like with a lot of, let's say, like anti-monopoly is a really good stance to have, but within some anti-monopolistic discourse is a belief that competition is is inherently good and with with some things if they're if they're just if they're natural monopolies they would be more efficient and most like work better for the public benefit as public as within public ownership and i guess for people who haven't necessarily taken like a intro level econ class a natural monopoly is a situation where the service or good would be best provided by one entity Often utilities fall under that yeah. example. You know, obviously you, you run into problems with natural monopolies where if you don't regulate it properly, then they can be, you know, an abusive entity that doesn't provide good services and isn't responsive to the public. But the idea, like the sort of a clear cut example is it's weird to install two competing water systems to deliver public water in one yeah. town. So you typically only have one entity do that, and then you're supposed to regulate it uh, to prevent those abuses. But of course, that depends on having effective regulation, enforceable yeah. regulation, things like that. But as you said, there are there are these people who are saying all monopolies are bad, and that's not just limited to big corporations, and therefore we should 
uh, break up all these companies and, and promote competition everywhere. And then, of course, that leads to saying that various public government services should also be provided competitively. Yeah. So that's the problem that like anti that private monopolies tend to be bad because there's a way that you can exploit consumers really easily. And there's a lack of a lack of check and the kind of checks involved with that. But some things just are flat out more efficient to be public monopolies because just because of the natural kind of economic forces of how something works. Like I think that health insurance is pretty much, as we've seen in a number of states where like the number of insurers on the Affordable Care Act health insurance exchanges ends up like narrowing down to one. It's to some extent that's because health insurance is something that probably is a natural monopoly, because there's no there's no gains in efficiency with having multiple people selling you the exact same thing. That there, there's value if multiple people are selling you different products that that differ in ways that are not purely quantitative. Well, and, and we saw also earlier this year another example of, of a situation that trended toward a natural monopoly with very disastrous consequences was the company that makes the EpiPen, which has literally mm -hmm. already yeah. gone generic. That's a generic product at this point, and any other company can reformulate the same compound. They can make their own auto-injector, and they could try to sell it. But they don't because that would then require them to spend, you know, probably billions of dollars on an advertising campaign convincing parents that this cheaper alternative that you've never heard of is as yeah. safe for your child and will also prevent them from dying during an allergic reaction. Uh, oh, and then you also have to compete with the fact that the company managed to that makes the EpiPen, the, the, the branded EpiPen, that they managed to land the contract to get EpiPens in every you know school nurse's office in the country almost and so now you're going to have to say not only is this product that you've never heard of as good as the EpiPen but it's also as good as this product that is in every single school nurse's office in the country and so they have there was a company a few years back I, I am told uh, from past guest uh, Sawbones host uh, Dr. Sydney McElroy on her show they did an episode recently on that and, they, and she said that another company did try to break into that market to sell a sort of cheaper version of it because it is generic and there isn't a patent, you know, restricting that. And they just couldn't hack it because the competition was so overwhelming from this sort of monopolistic entity yeah. that is not very well regulated. And that's how the price went way up to hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Think of the EpiPen case. I can't remember the exact detail with this, but I remember reading... so. The, the CEO of that company is Joe, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia's daughter. And Joe Manchin's wife is the head of some association that involves school. Do you remember what that was? It was I don't remember schools. the name of it, but yeah, she was the prime sort of lobbying force unofficially that pushed this. Yeah. Yeah. So that's also a family. yeah that's also a, a bit of a, a bit of a problem yeah um, and then and then you know the, the sort of then the flip side that we saw emerging back through this uh, Bernie Sanders sort of revival I mean I would argue he was running on a fairly mainline social democratic platform rather yes. than a democratic socialist platform the platform that he essentially yeah. ran on was not nationalize everything. I mean, yeah. he's gone a lot less far than, say, Jeremy Corbyn, you know, yeah. running as, as, you know, who's the socialist leader of the Labor Party in Britain now, reelected again to that position of saying, we're going to renationalize the rail system there, which that's an issue for another show. But that's, <laughs> that's actually a fairly legitimate position to hold if you know anything yeah. about the situation there.
Sanders didn't run on saying we're going to nationalize all of the goods and services produced in the United States, which would be a more like socialist position to have. But he ran on this more sort of moderate, old school Democratic, you know, Truman era, as I've said before, platform of saying we need certain things like health care to be public monopolies, you know, and then that's been a debate in the education side, which we can get into later as well about the, you know, public versus private you know, and blurring the lines there. Uh, Rachel, I wanted to get your perspective on some of this. Has this, is this, we, Jonathan and I spend a lot of time, waste a lot of time (laughs) on like Twitter and whatever. And like, you know, hanging out in this, you know, cauldron of endless discussion of these things. Um, I I think you're, you have a little bit more common sense to uh, (laughs) do actual work and not do that all day. Um, But I was wondering, is this a, is this sort of dichotomy something that you have observed this year or is this just like us being incredibly nerdy about the whole thing? Well, I I definitely agree with Jonathan's point that because millennials haven't experienced the Cold War firsthand, we don't really see socialism as the same thing as communism as it as this giant boogeyman that's like terrifying this red monster that's coming to destroy our way of life. So I definitely, I definitely see that. <laughs> well, so and 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 you know, in in Idaho, I would imagine that since the number of sort of leftish leaning people is relatively small within the population, probably the distinction is not made as heavily in those circles. I'm guessing if your whole thing is resisting against this like oppressive, overwhelming force of conservatives. I don't know, would you be less likely maybe to be making like splitting hairs, arguably, about those distinctions? Um, Yeah, we can't really afford to engage in a lot of like infighting or a lot of, I guess, these really deep philosophical debates because we just don't have time and we don't have the numbers really to support multiple factions, I guess. But I try to get out and about in the Capitol as much as I can and have as time allows. And it, it, I definitely do see more young people going out and actually like rallying at our state Capitol building. So I think we're definitely seeing a youth movement here in Idaho, and I'm hoping it translates to maybe some more activism from the left because we kind of have a pretty milk toast central Democratic Party here in Idaho. So hopefully some of those passionate young maybe more socially like socially minded left people left leaning people can really push that our platform to the left cuz basically now our platform is just we're not them which isn't very compelling which probably is a contributing factor to why we are so weak as a party in it, here in Idaho we just don't offer that much positive we're just kind of we're not them uh, yeah and i think that is uh, a significant problem in a lot of the states that have sort of gotten written off as as red states. I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to to the point that you've made, which is that you can't really afford to be like, you know, cutting out the few number of people that you have if they don't like if they're a little bit too, you know, centristy for you or whatever. Um, and and we're we're speaking from the perspective of 80 percent Democratic majorities <laughs> in the legislature in Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, and so then it becomes a lot easier to have that debate. And certainly, I obviously just ran a, a primary challenge against a sitting Democrat. So I'm particularly attuned to 
the infighting angle and 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 valuing like pointing out differences but at the same time and i i think we're going to talk about this a little bit more uh in in the next segment uh, when we get into some down ballot discussions uh so i do want to circle back to that but i think that there is some value to maybe defining a little bit more clearly than just we're not republicans and that may end up costing a few people but my hope is that you would define yourself clearly enough that you could actually start to pull in some interesting new votes that you wouldn't otherwise be getting because you're running on say a more like populist message that says like we we're not trying to create an oppressive government overlord, but we also want a clean, non-corrupt government that is free of corporate influence, and we want the corporations to not have, like, complete control over our lives. One thing that I was going to say, building off the former discussion of universal public goods and social de- social democracy versus democratic socialism, is that kind of one of the things that Sanders always t- kind of stressed was the idea of bringing to the U.S. some of the achievements that happened almost as a mid-century, mid-century in, in, say, the UK or continental Europe, where they did achieve, to, like, to varying extents by country, like, the, the provision of universal public goods, particularly in healthcare and education, which the US obviously lagged very far behind, or, like, and never fully achieved the same extent of provision or regulation as existed there. So you do have a divide, so, like, he's, which I was reminded of, because I'm currently reading a book that's just, that's talking about the development of have universal public goods and other forms of let's say democratic economics in scandinavia i can find the author i forget the author of his name off the top of my head the book is in my bag if if i should should take it out for that but it's called viking economics and just looking at the development of the type of economic systems that you have in iceland norway sweden finland denmark where you do tend to have a a more let's say collectivist ethos a democratic and collectivist ethos kind of that strength of making of universal public goods of kind of a strong presence of cooperatives within like the market sector and 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 kind of much lower poverty rates than you see in other places often more gender parity and gender equity in the economy and politics than you see elsewhere and talking about how that developed and how that makes them say different than other places well and i also think that it's worth noting that for a long time, the U.S. discussion alighted over any of the differences within Europe on how these services were provided, <laughs> because Northern Europe, Germany, and Scandinavia, uh, and also France to some extent, tend to provide things very differently than some other countries do. And even the difference between, you know, the U.K. and Canada is pretty substantial. Yeah. Um, a lot of these countries took a social democratic approach. And they implemented tightly regulated and monitored social insurance systems. Maybe it's privately owned and operated healthcare providers. The doctors work for the you know work for a private entity that's closely monitored and regulated and capped at certain profit levels. The care is uh, like paid for through a an insurance system rather than a direct system. And then you have the UK where it's mm-hmm. all. You work for the government if you're a doctor. The hospitals are yeah. publicly owned. You pay, uh, you know, a national tax that doesn't go into an insurance fund like in Canada. It mm-hmm. just pays for the healthcare system yeah. essentially. And so there are different ways of of doing these things, and that difference was really blurred over for a long time 
to my mind, you could be exploring some of these systems for a U.S. perspective that could work in the United States and aren't wholly incompatible. But there was this portrayal that like, oh, we have nothing in common with these countries and we can't possibly, you know, disrupt the system that much. I mean, if you've listened to the show, you know that I'm not against big jumps in, you know, policy or anything like that. But I can see how like potentially disruptive and therefore how much resistance you would get to, say, replacing the entire U.S. healthcare system with a publicly owned central system versus gradually ratcheting up or hopefully fast, fast ratcheting up of the controls on private uh, insurers that you could say, okay, yes, you get to be the sole provider of healthcare, health insurance, that sort of thing in Alabama. You know, we're not going to keep pushing this competition unsuccessfully. We're also not going to introduce a public option maybe. But if you are the sole provider of health services in Alabama, you have to, you know, your profits are capped at this amount. Your overhead is capped at this amount. Your executive compensation is capped at this amount. And you have to provide care at these levels. You can't deny care to these types of things. And then also saying, there, the problem is there are still so many problems with these entities, part, right? Well, well part, of the, part of the, it's like the U.S., if I'm not mistaken, because this could just have been like a U.S.-Europe framework, but I believe the U.S. is the only country that has for-profit health insurance. I could, I could be wrong in there, because no, like in Europe, where you have private insurance in some countries, they're not for-profit. Right, right, yeah, Germany, they're non-profit. Yeah, Germany has non-profit. That they can yeah. make, that you have insurance companies, they might make their profit off of life insurance, or on upselling you different like in health insurance related products. Yeah, and, and France like, has that upselling system of yeah. like you get a certain basic level and then we'll add on other things if you want to through the you know yeah. more private system. So the rich people still get the system that they want, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, oh, and I know the other thing I was thinking of that's the huge glaring problem in the system right now, especially for millennials, is the incredibly high deductibles, yeah. especially on those Obamacare plans. Like this is really not working for a lot of younger people uh, within, you know, who have to get insurance through the exchange, which is that you're paying a, a huge amount, you know, maybe half your rent uh, money is going, yeah. you know, the same amount again is going each month to pay for your health insurance premium. And then if something actually happens to you, that insurance doesn't kick in right away. That insurance does not kick in until you've paid out of pocket, you know, several thousand dollars. And that is still a huge problem for many people because many people our generation do not have large cash reserves and indeed are basically by law prevented from having huge cash reserves due to inability to reduce their student loan debt and yeah. that you have to pay the student loan yeah. debt before almost anything else or you start getting your wages garnished and other consequences and you can't discharge that debt. So the, th this, you know... Like, that's the problem is even if you imagine applying a German system, you then think about all the problems that we have that you would have to correct within your private health insurance yeah. system as well. Um, Rachel, do you have an uh, employer-based insurance for you or are you through the exchange? Um, I work for the state of Idaho, which actually does have a fairly decent benefit program. So I do get my insurance paid through, like most of it paid through my employer. Well, Fortunately. That, that actually raises another thing, which I think you may be able to comment on a little bit, uh, Rachel, is um, something that I heard a few times, not a whole lot, in, but when I was at campaigning, 
Uh, and I know that it's a sentiment that absolutely exists out there. It's most commonly manifested against teachers, but I think it's a more general sentiment, is a, a rising resentment to public employees, which definitely ties into the issue of these socialist or social democratic perspectives of having a large public sector uh, and having public entities rather than private, you know, private employers. Uh, I'm guessing in Idaho, that's probably it. it I, I could be wrong. Is, is there uh, some level of antipathy in the general public toward uh, public employees because they're quote unquote part of the government and are and are seen to be somehow getting compensated more than like other people? Um, I have seen a little bit of that, not really directed towards the Department of Health and Welfare, which is where my job is, is under that umbrella. But just like, yeah, definitely with like teachers or just like our highest paid employee is the football coach at Boise State University. Um, and he gets two, more than $2 million a year. So I have definitely seen some resentment towards his pay and his uh, benefit package. Yeah, that's um, a legitimate resentment. Yeah. <laughs> But and I have noticed, like, especially because Idaho was one of the states that did not expand uh, Medicaid um, or Medicare. It was Medicaid. Uh, yeah. Medicaid. So there is that giant gap that a lot of people are falling into where they make too much to get subsidized through Medicaid, but they make so little they can barely afford the worst bronze plan on the exchange. Um yeah, I know, so, I know your sister Sarah has talked about that on many past episodes yeah. of Arsenal for Democracy, and I can't imagine it's gotten any better since, you know, the last time she, you know, when she was talking about that two years ago or so. Yeah, right. And I think because they've announced that a lot of those premiums are going up, so you're getting the same amount of, of health care as you were two years ago, but paying significantly more. So, um, yeah, I have kind of seen some of those resentful sentiments, but I think it's all a part of trying to divide the people that should be uniting. Like, instead of asking, why do you get this? It should be, why don't I get this? Right. Thing, exactly. This benefit that I deserve. That was, so, I mean, that was, that. no, I, not to interrupt you, but yeah, that was an astounding conversation that I had on the campaign trail when I was running is this guy who was saying, I don't think public employees should have unions. And I said, why not? And he said, well, either they shouldn't or everyone should. And I said, yes. yes. <laughs> and, like, obviously yeah. everyone yeah. should, yeah. like, what? Congratulations on reaching that conclusion. But yeah, no, go ahead, Rachel. Uh, and that, that adds another facet to it because we are uh, a right-to-work state. So I do see a lot of people getting getting screwed over because they can't uh, collectively bargain. And so I think that kind of feeds into that resentment for, like, for example, teachers who can collectively bargain. It's like, oh, those fat cats are trying to get these big, like, benefits packages and it's it's just like, no, <laughs> like they're, they're not asking for very much, but because it's seen, it's seen as more than what the average person is getting, then it's, it's seen as like this special treatment almost. Right. And yeah, as I said, I think the teachers unions tend to bear the brunt of that as the most visible public mm -hmm. employees unions. But uh, as we know from countless economic studies in recent years, we actually need more public employees, not yeah. just to make the government run smoothly, but people forget that those are jobs and income streams that then go back into the economy. Yeah. So that we, you know, we have gradually seen jobs coming back very, very slowly in other sectors. A lot of it has been in low paid service jobs that are not, you know, government jobs at all. Uh, they're like fast food jobs and things like that or retail jobs. 
that's not as good for the economy as a fairly well compensated or yeah. even modestly compensated public employee. And a lot of these states faced tremendous pressure to slash their public employment after the recession due to budget cuts and then the budget sequestration from the federal mm -hmm. government. And I've been frustrated personally by how much emphasis uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign, for example, has placed on saying, you know, small businesses will be the engine of our economic development and recovery and that sort of thing. And it's like, well, OK, like no one's really saying, no, we shouldn't help small businesses or promote small businesses. But at the same time, like you're backed by all these public employee unions and we need them to be bigger and we need the, the public employees in general. We need more of them. We need more hiring. A lot, a lot of people, you know, somebody got furloughed or whatever, or their wages were cut as part of a, you know, emergency budget deal, you know, five years ago at this point, maybe even six, depending. But, yeah. Budget control, budget control act of 2011. Yeah. And, and, a, and a lot of people at, at the state level or County level, you know, I have a relative, for example, they had to go on strike earlier this year because their County in California had just not restored the, the, the wages cuts that they had sort of voluntarily agreed to as a temporary emergency measure. And it's been years now. And so we've seen this, you know, wage depressions. We've seen people get their office sizes reduced significantly. And everyone has to carry a bigger load. And then that just becomes the new normal and they never replace those people. And a, I don't think it makes the government run that smoothly. And most people, you know, if you, if you call like a health and welfare office or the IRS or something like that, these are entities that you're going to have longer wait times getting through to people, or you're going to have people who are overloaded with too many cases. We saw that in Massachusetts with the department of children and uh, families, they got a lot of heat for Unfortunately, children dying in foster care, and that was a horrible outcome. But at the same time, if you're dumping hundreds and hundreds of cases yeah. on them and you're dumping hundreds of cases on the attorneys that represent children in these cases, you know, that's well above their capacity that you can handle as an individual person. Yeah, kids are going to die and, and people aren't going to be able to talk to government officials when something goes wrong that they need something resolved they're not going to be able to talk to these people because the public sector has been slashed backward and and as rachel says the question the wrong question to be asking is why do the public sectors get x y and z benefits that i don't the question is why don't you get those benefits as well why don't you get those wages as well and you know, to go back to what Jonathan was talking about in these Northern European mm -hmm. countries, especially the Scandinavian countries in general, at least until recently, it has not been legislation directly that tends to provide many of the benefits, especially regarding wages. Yeah. It tends to be very strong union negotiations mm -hmm. and then people who aren't even in the union benefit as well, which we see that too in the United yeah. States, that union union presence tends to drive up non-union wages because they don't want people to be pushing for a union and they don't want people to go yeah. work for the company that does have a union. So, you know, having strong unions is, is critical for everyone in the economy. And, you know, we've had this anti-union agenda for a long time. Yeah, because like, they, they basically, to use the, term use the term externality before in terms of like the concept of a negative externality, unions in many ways function as a positive externality um, or like kind of create positive externalities for the, um, those around them. But yeah, because that's one thing, as the author of the book was George Lakey, um, Viking Economics, How the Scandinavians Got It Right and How We Can Too. 
um, one thing that he does talk about is the high rates of unionization that you do have in Scandinavian countries, and I think that they might, I think they've dipped as it's happened globally recently, but when it dips in Scandinavia, it's still many times larger, like many times higher than it is in the U.S., and I think in some of these countries, they don't have a minimum wage, but the unions are so large that that kind of that doesn't really become, that's not an issue there because they're powerful enough to negotiate kind of the wages and benefits that, 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 that they want. Uh, and like pretty much all across sectors, it tends to be very heavily unionized. Um, on the point before talking about kind of the impact of austerity and budget cuts and the delivery of public services, that reminded me of discussions that I've had before around social security and how it, it, it's nice to see that the discuss, that the concept of expanding social security is now much more widely endorsed or, or, and talked about in the Democratic Party, although what exactly expanding it means can vary um, in terms of, yeah, you know, for like Bernie Sanders and also let's, I think Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren, I think like Sherrod Brown tend to talk about universal expansion. It's never 100% clear to me to what extent Hillary Clinton supports universal expansion rather than just targeted expansions in that, which are good in and of themselves, but they don't fully address the issue, but beyond just the, the, the size of benefits, there's the administration of benefits. And if you're closing down a number of social security offices, as it's happened recently, you are weakening the program and you are, you're, like, you're directly harming it in a way that often goes unnoticed because, by, by those at the top. And I think that was something that we were trying to get into at the beginning and maybe diverged a little yeah. bit off of, is that universal programs are very popular. They are popular among conservatives. They are popular among liberals. They are popular among socialists. They are popular among people who are just apathetic and have no particular affiliations. There has been, in my view, a huge split within the Democratic mm-hmm. Party this past year on, and, and I mean this at a base level, yeah. of universal programs and universality as a good thing versus means testing mm-hmm. New programs, I should stress, because it is still relatively little support within the Democratic base for means testing Social Security, I think. Yeah. But new programs, absolutely, there's a large constituency that wants to means test, including many friends of mine that I agree with, you know, 90% of the time. They, you know, Sanders was pushing for, it wasn't free, it was framed as free college a lot of times in the discussions. It was not free. It was zero tuition, public universities yeah so that meant that if you wanted to still go to your private college or whatever you would and you would still pay tuition there that has nothing to do with anything um but zero tuition basically a public option that there would be a zero tuition option at public universities and colleges and even that many people were saying no you should have to either work for it like do a work Mm -hmm. study thing or it should be means tested so that only some people get it for free and some people have to pay. And the line that Hillary Clinton used a lot of times was, I don't want, I don't think the government and the taxpayers should pay for Donald Trump's children to go to college for free, which that's a ridiculous line because obviously it's very unlikely that someone with any 1% level person, they're probably not going to send their kid to you know a public university or college to begin with so why are we even talking about that but that's an absurd line yeah. as well just because it undercuts this idea that like we d- nobody says that for k through 12 yeah so why would you say it for 
you know, college. That's what I don't understand. Exactly. It's like, I don't want, she's not going to say, I don't want, like, we shouldn't have public schools because I don't want Donald Trump's kids to get free K-12 education. Given the point, as you were just noting, but like, Donald Trump's kids, I think few of them went to his, his alma mater, uh, the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. One went to my alma mater of Georgetown. Um, I forget where the, the, the other, get the other one, but they're not going to public colleges and universities. And rich people are small in number. Their wealth is huge, but their number is small. So if, if a few of them do go to the universities, who cares? You're not actually spending that much money. Right. And, and what, what you do with, let's say, the kind of like the program that I think Sanders was going to fund his through, I think, as part uh, of it was like a tax and transactions tax. Financial yeah. transactions. Even though technically the government can spend whatever money it wants and you don't technically need to fund a program or something else, it makes sense from a distributional standpoint because you're basically saying the children of the rich can go here for free, but they're paying for their kids and everyone else's. Yeah. Because high volume transactions is a business limited to the very wealthy. <laughs> exactly. They are the ones who have enough money to have high volumes of transactions within the stock <laughs> exactly. market. Right. So yeah. No, I mean and, and that like that's the thing is is this resistance to to making new programs universal. And we saw this with the with the uh, Obamacare or Affordable Care Act uh, exchanges and the various plans mm-hmm. and things. You know, as Rachel said, in a state like Idaho that opted not to expand Mm -hmm. the Medicaid eligibility, you end up with this donut hole between the Medicaid line and the subsidies line. And then the question there is, well, why did we do it this way instead of just like, why did we why I always call this Rube Goldberg liberalism. Why did we build a complicated mousetrap when we could have just built one big system. And I understand there's political resistance to making the conversion. And that's what I was talking about earlier. But by the same token, there's a certain point where you're making the system worse and more expensive and you're not really fixing that much of a problem. They can brag all they want about how many millions of people are no longer uninsured, but it doesn't matter if those people uh, are going broke to pay for the insurance and then go actually broke when they actually need it because there's such a high deductible. And th- there's also a problem with the, the design of the Affordable Care Act is how people, like if people's insurance rates are going going up as they, they are in many cases still going up, people aren't going to think, well, the first derivative of, my, of the health insurance cost curve is going down, so this is great. Um, they experience that as an increase. It might be a smaller increase than it would have been like in the alternative scenario in which the Affordable Care Act is right. Well, but and the that, costs are the still thing. going they, up. They, like, how did you design a plan that you were going to, you knew you were going to have a knockout fight about for years on end to defend because that's happened with every other program like this. They designed a program that instead of saying your health insurance will cost less yeah. within like five years or, t- you know, something like that. They said it will bend the cost, cost curve, curve downward. Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah, I've, I, 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 well, I, for one, think that the first derivative of the healthcare cost curve is going down is a wonderful bumper sticker. It's on my <laughs> car. Like, this, these things don't have public support. They don't have self-generating political support. Social Security had self-generating political support because people went from being old and in poverty yeah. to being old and not quite in poverty, yeah. right? That's an immediate thing where you can say, oh, my cost of living and my standard yeah. of living have greatly improved. Like, 
this doesn't make any sense. Oh, we're going to make a, this huge program that's going to be extremely controversial that this party has vowed to fight everything I do so that I don't get reelected. And we're going to design it not only to benefit these major private insurance companies, but we're going to design it so the cost doesn't go down. Yeah. Like it, it escalates yeah, more slowly. Yeah, it escalates more slowly. What are you doing? How are they this bad at designing policy? And that's the problem, folks. That's the problem. <laughs> when you don't embrace universal public goods and you design these Rube Goldberg contraptions where you think the market is going to solve everything if you just tinker around with some government yeah. policies here, you're not going to have a politically popular program. You're not going to have a program that accomplishes the results you think it's going to accomplish. And then you're just wasting everyone's time and everyone's money. And it's a huge catastrophe. Anyway, Arsenal for Democracy is going to a break right now. We'll be back in just a few <laughs> minutes. We're going to talk about down ballot recruitment and the kind of policies and platforms that we need to be pushing so that we can win states like Idaho back again. So arsenalfordemocracy.com WVUD. We'll be right back in just a moment. Stick around. You're still listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Still in the studio with me is Jonathan. And on the line with me from Idaho is Rachel. Uh, we're talking this week about differences within the Democratic Party on approaches to policy and politics. Now we're going to be talking more specifically about down-ballot recruitment and diversifying the party's presence within different areas of the country, uh, and including some areas like Idaho, which makes Rachel a great person to have on for this week. So something that I posted on the ArsenalForDemocracy.com blog this week was more thoughts on down-ballot recruitment, something that I have been talking about for quite a few years now, particularly because I've worked so many races down ballot that I obviously see some inherent value to it. But, you know, I think one thing that we brought up a little bit last week, and I think a lot of us have been concerned about is that the Clinton campaign seems to be appealing very strongly to sort of like crossover ex-urban Republican voters who are uncomfortable with Donald Trump, rather than like saying Donald Trump is part and parcel with the Republican Party at every single level. And this has caused some problems for some of the Democratic U.S. Senate nominees and congressional nominees nominees and a situation where we could have had, you know, landslides for the presidential level that also brought in majorities on the Democratic side for the House and Senate. We may win the Senate and we are probably not going to win the House. A lot of that, I think, speaks to a recruitment problem in general. There's many cases to be made that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committees, which are the two primary institutions that conduct recruitment for the Senate and House, didn't really do that much recruitment in a lot of races where they could have potentially. And this leads to either nobody contesting it from the Democratic side or some just like random person who happened to file the paperwork to run. There are also states where the paperwork to get on the ballot for a lot of offices is very, very difficult, both for Democrats and also for various third parties. But we're talking specifically today about down-ballot recruitment for the Democratic Party. One of the challenges, I think, is in the areas where they do recruit, the institutions at the, at the party level nationally have tended to recruit self-funders mm -hmm. so that they can immediately start, you know, campaigning very quickly. All the startup costs for the campaign are covered. And they also tend to recruit these sort of like really bland people that have a family name like... Uh, a good example of this was in Georgia in the last cycle. Okay. They had both uh, a Jimmy Carter progeny and a Sam Nunn progeny running for various statewide offices, uh, if I remember correctly. I think it was governor and Senate. Yes. And yeah, and they didn't do that well. And they both ran on kind of this like, to use Rachel's word from the last segment, uh, 
milk toast democratic yes. platform of let's all get along and have bipartisan cooperation. And, you know, I get in some states like Delaware, for example, where we're airing this show. Trust me, I've worked in Delaware politics enough to know that there are some areas of the country where people are real jazzed about bipartisan moderation. <laughs> Most of the country, that's not true. Most of the country, we have sorted pretty evenly. People tend to be married to someone that agrees with them. They tend to live in, an, in a street where everyone agrees with them, in a neighborhood where everyone agrees with them, in maybe even a town or city where everyone agrees with them. People have been sorting themselves geographically. Even people who move from a state like, say, Massachusetts to North Carolina, tend not to be the average Massachusetts voter. They tend to be more in line with the average North Carolina voter. Maybe a little bit more socially liberal. Although it might depend on where in North Carolina you're moving. It, it depends, but but think of it this way. Although socially they're significantly more liberal than the, the pre-existing non-Northern voters had been in North Carolina, economically they tend to be moving there because they're either affiliated with a major science and technology research firm mm -hmm. or they're affiliated with a major banking institution or something otherwise part of the financial system. Those people tend to be very sympathetic yeah. to major corporations and the financial system yeah. as opposed to having a more, well, universal public goods oriented yeah. perspective like we were talking about last segment. So this has been one of the problems uh, is that the Democratic Party keeps running these candidates in these states where they run as light Republicans or kind of wishy-washy, like centrist agenda, got to cut the budget, got to cut the entitlements, that kind of thing. And that doesn't really bring people out to the polls. It certainly doesn't activate black voters in the South, which is a big thing that needs to happen in order for Democrats to win. And it doesn't get that many of these ex-urban white voters to come out for them either, because as many people have said, if you run a light Republican against a real Republican, the real Republican's going to win 90% of the time. So my concern is that we're not doing what we need to do to recruit people that can actually win with a different message. And I don't know if it's necessarily going to be like, a Bernie Sanders candidate per se, I think that may have been overstated a little bit during the primary by some of the people backing him, which I did too, but I, I think that it's going to need to be a different message. Rachel, I was wondering, you know, you, you've mentioned that you and your sister both live in Boise, which is sort of this liberal enclave within a conservative state. Do you see Democratic candidates in Idaho that have any shot at winning statewide these days? Uh, and, and if not, uh, what do you think they're doing wrong? Well, I think, like you said, the federal or the national party, uh, it kind of basically ignores us and leaves us out to dry because it would definitely be a long shot to uh, try to support one of our candidates at the state level. So we, like you said, we do get some of those random people that just kind of file the paperwork every four years or so. And they don't really have name recognition. They they usually haven't held public office before. And it's just, it's very discouraging because obviously voter excitement and voter turnout are very low for those candidates. I do see some, some rising stars in our state legislature, and I'm not sure if they're not, if their ambition isn't for higher office, if they feel they're affecting more change at the state level, or if our state party just has really crappy recruitment and isn't fostering that sort of growth and of the talent. So I think the voting pool is there. They're just not very excited because you'd get this no-name person that maybe played football at Boise State 20 years ago, and that's like their claim to fame. I think with the Bernie Sanders movement, there is that swell of grassroots 
activism. And I think we can kind of build up the party from the bottom, maybe foster that talent so that we can reach higher offices. And and I know that you had uh, a caucus there on the Democratic side. So that's a little bit harder to judge than perhaps a primary vote. Mm -hmm. But did you see people who were getting involved who maybe uh, it wasn't a question of enthusiasm in the past? It was a question of they just didn't participate in the past. And this time they did. Um, I mean, I I think mathematically, your sister was mentioning last week that it was this record-breaking turnout that obviously indicated a need for a primary instead of a caucus. But Mm -hmm. do do you think that indicates that there were a lot of people who previously didn't participate at all because they weren't motivated by a candidate? I think I did see, I, trying to think back, I... I did see more engagement among, like, it's a, it's a small self-selecting pool, but amongst my Facebook friends, I did see a lot more political speech on their Facebook and a little, uh, like, more action and more activism. So I think, I think we are getting some new people to the party, and I think we can kind of grow our numbers if, if the state party doesn't kind of tamp it out. Um, I <laughs> yeah, well, and that's been a that's been a problem, too. I mean, well, I think we're you know, we're almost out of time for this week, but we're definitely going to talk about this on some future episodes again as well. But this idea, this clash between what the party institutions think is effective versus what actually would be effective with base activists and things like that. Jonathan, oh, I was going to note one thing just thinking about running campaigns in Idaho is that one thing that's unfortunate about the National Party overlooking a kind of a large, largely rural states um, like that is that it's probably not nearly as expensive to advertise yeah. in Idaho as in other mm-hmm. states. Media markets in let's say in, in the in the in the Northeast and Mid Atlantic and then in certain parts of California will be very expensive media markets. But it, it shouldn't cost you that much more to put up a like that much to put up a good effort in some other states. And it's unfortunate to completely overlook those. Right. And I think that the national institutions, their potential value, if they did a good job, which in my opinion they tend not to is that they can do some of that expensive ad buying type stuff mm-hmm. in support of these candidates. And that would be fine if they actually put in that work. And it wouldn't, as you said, it wouldn't cost that much. But that requires them to go along with the message that the candidate wants to do yeah. and that the activists want. Because I can tell you, you know, from my own experience, you get a heck of a lot more activists, even to an obscure race like the one that I was running, if you're running on a platform that appeals to the activists. And having an activist base, in my opinion, I mean, I, I didn't win, but there were various other factors for that. Mm-hmm. Having an activist base that shows up can really help a lot because even if you think, oh, we'll never make up that gap in voters, you can because you have the people to do yeah. the voter contacts. I mean, you know, I don't want to get too far into it, but I was looking at statistics in the United Kingdom, for example, which is a much smaller country than the United mm-hmm. States, but has a very, very underdeveloped field campaign system relative to where we are mm-hmm. in the United States. You know, the Barack Obama campaign in 2012 did 150 million voter contacts, not counting robocalls. That was 150 million live contacts in person or on the phone with voters. And if you if you bring that to places, whether it's the United Kingdom or whether it's a state Mm -hmm. that typically doesn't get it in the United States, you can make up that gap. Yes, it's going to require volunteers. But how are you going to get those volunteers? You're going to run on a campaign that actually energizes them. And then the question is, okay, well, is this platform too radical or too far to the left to be able to win in some of these places? I suspect not because a, you start getting more turnout in places like, you know, Boise or one of these other bigger cities in a generally conservative Mm -hmm. state. You you drive up the turnout in those areas. And then you start, you know, like Montana is a great example of this. Montana has gone swinging back and forth and back and forth between sort of corporate 
oriented versus government oriented, whether it's conservative or liberal is less relevant than which one they're swinging back and forth between. It's generally populist, right? So if they think that the government is going to save them from corrupt corporations, they vote for the government oriented party, the clean government oriented party. And if they vote for, and if they think that the government is corrupt and ruining their lives, they're going to go with the party that says we're going to privatize things and let corporations handle it because they're going with the one that's going to interfere less with their lives. And I think that means that like in a state like, you know, in, in places like Colorado or Montana or Wyoming or Idaho, you're going to need to run candidates that are economically populist. That's going to have to trend a little bit toward sort of individualism on some aspects, but it's also going to be like providing underlying safety nets for people you know, so that they can have that entrepreneurial opportunity, things like that. And you're going to need, uh, you're going to need candidates and platforms that are very civil liberties oriented, right. And saying like, we're going to stop government abuses, that sort of thing. So if a Democrat runs on a thing of, we're going to provide these universal programs, it's not going to be a handout, but it's going to just, it's going to be theirs because you earned it and it's your right, you know, something like that. I, I get there's a little tension there with the concept of earning versus just having a universal right. But you, you tinker the messaging around a little bit. I think you can win with candidates like that. Well, the one thing that you could easily say with that is that if you're providing the like a universal, kind of the universal public goods, you say that we want to provide you these goods to kind of help you and then get out of your way. Yeah. Um, which is when you right, have... Less complicated systems. Exactly. So that you're not... at. If you have a system that has a lot of bureaucracy to it that you do get, if you have some sort of a Rube Goldberg system that involves means testing and asset tests, there's a lot of interfacing with kind of often burdensome government entities. If you have have a street kind of a, a universal system, it's many you'll get fewer interactions, and if you have fewer and simpler interactions, it tends to be better. People's like things are fewer, like simpler and faster. Right. I, I fundamentally believe, and maybe it's naive of me, but I fundamentally believe that people who are skeptical and suspicious of government and big government programs are skeptical because they've had bad interactions with government. The DMV. Uh, yeah. The DMV tends to be the quintessential example, but also, you know, dealing with the IRS. Yeah. If you can give people the most pleasant, minimal interactions exactly. possible that gets the job done, they will not care. It's like how in many areas of the country, even with us problematic as Medicare sometimes can be. Many people very much love Medicare and they say things like, you know, during the Obamacare stuff, they got made fun of for saying Mm -hmm. it, but keep government hands off my Medicare. And it's like, oh, but don't you get it? It's a government program. And it's like, yeah, but they don't because they don't experience it in the way that they experience most government programs. Mm -hmm. They experience most government programs as this devastating hassle that ruins their life, Yeah, you know, and and it isn't there when they need it. You know, and and I think like that's another thing, too, that you can especially, I think, pitch in a state like Idaho or, you know, Alabama or Louisiana or wherever is this program has to be there when you need it. And the private corporations are not going to be. The, The point is, I think you can you can run on social democratic platforms and big government programs as long as you frame it as we're going to deliver the most effective government possible. It's going to get out of your way. It's going to get the job done. You're not going to have to worry about it. It's going to reduce your economic insecurity and you're going to be able to go about your life and do what you want, right? And I think that a lot of people get that too. But you have to be willing to campaign on these things proudly and you have to be willing to explain them to voters and make the case and also that would be a great thing for like these party institutions to be doing like the DCCC and the DSCC to run ads in a place like Montana saying 
this is how this is supposed to work, this government program. And, uh, it, you know, we want to do it this way. And this is why this would be a better system than what the Republicans are offering. But they don't run ads like that. But you look at like a state like Kentucky, the governor there, when it was a Democratic governor, he established his own health uh, connector system website for the Obamacare. And like it worked. And when the federal system didn't work, it worked in Kentucky. Yeah. Right. And it, and it, and people didn't have a problem with it. And he even remembered, oh, we need to make sure that there's a dial up version of this because there are areas of Kentucky that still have dial up. Like when you are thinking pragmatically like that and saying, how can we make this the most effective system possible at the pu point of public interface? You can, I, I believe, persuade people that this is a, a good way of doing it and a better way of doing it than the status quo or whatever nonsense the Republicans are offering. We are out of time. There's obviously a lot more we could cover, uh, and I'm sure we're going to have Rachel back on to talk more about this as well because we really did not have a lot of time this week um, to talk about this. But, uh, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it's great to have you back after quite a number of years. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a real pleasure. And Jonathan, thank you for joining me in studio. I'm sure you're going to be back very soon. Uh, thank you for having me. It's fun being on. That's all the time we have this week. Tweet us your comments at AFD Radio or email afdradio at gmail.com. The show is available for download from arsenalfordemocracy.com on Wednesdays. You can also hear it on the air in Delaware from 91.3 FM WVUD, WVUD HD1, and WVUD HD2 Newark every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can get additional commentary at arsenalfordemocracy.com daily, as well as links to articles discussed today. From my studio in Newton, Massachusetts, I'm Bill Humphrey, and I approve this message. Good night. Thank you.